Welcome to the September 17th, 2020 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today we will examine the effects of protecting and regenerating panath cells and intestinal stem cells in acute graft-versus-host disease. Learn more about how plasmodium falciparum gametocytes develop in the bone marrow by invading erythroblasts, and look at a meta-analysis of direct oral anticoagulants for treating cancer patients with acute venous thromboembolism. Our first topic is a study entitled Glucagon-like Peptide II for Intestinal Stem Cell and Panath Cell Repair during graft-versus-host disease in mice and humans, reported by Johanna Norona and colleagues, led by Robert Zeiser at the University of Freiburg and Francis Ayuk from the University Medical Center Hamburg-Eppendorf, both in Germany. Acute graft-versus-host disease continues to be a major life-threatening complication following allogenic hemopoietic cell transplantation, or alloHCT. Despite the use of prophylactic immunosuppressive medications, that target the donor immune response, the incidence of GVHD remains high. Here, Nerona and colleagues sought a different approach to treating GVHD, which aimed to protect and regenerate panath cells and intestinal stem cells that are damaged by conditioning regimens and GVHD. They focused their attention on glucagon-like peptide 2, a protective peptide hormone secreted by specialized enteroendocrine cells in the gut epithelium that they hypothesized are eliminated by alloreactive T-cells during GVHD. The GI tract is the largest neuroendocrine organ, with different cells that secrete numerous hormones, including those that serve tissue protective and regenerative functions to maintain intestinal homeostasis. These functions may be impaired when intestinal enteroendocrine cells are damaged. L-cells are important enteroendocrine cells that secrete the peptide hormones glucagon-like peptide 1, or GLP-1, and glucagon-like peptide 2, or GLP-2. Both are derived from proteolytic cleavage from the pro-hormone proglucagon. GLP-2 has well-known protective and regenerative effects on the intestine, including an ability to promote mucosal growth, higher villi, a stronger blood circulation in mesenteric vessels, and increased barrier function. A GLP-2 analog, termed tadouglutide, is approved for chronic therapy of short bowel syndrome. Based on these effects, the authors decided to study the role of GLP-2 in GVHD. To first understand if L-cells were target cells of GVHD, they determined their number using immunohistochemistry, discovering that acute GVHD reduced L-cells in both mouse models of allo-HSCT and in patients developing GVHD. The loss was associated with reduced intestinal GLP-2 levels. Importantly, prophylactic treatment with the GLP-2 agonist, tadouglutide, reduced both de novo acute GVHD and steroid refractory GVHD in multiple mouse models. Mechanistically, tadouglutide promoted regeneration of panath cells and intestinal stem cells in murine GVHD. Panath cells help support intestinal stem cells and also produce antimicrobial peptides. Tadouglutide treatment was able to reverse some of the GVHD-induced changes in the intestinal microbiome. In addition, tadouglutide reduced the pro-inflammatory intestinal signature in GVHD 
an increased expression of Claudin R, a tight junction protein important for barrier function. GLP-2 also expanded the growth of intestinal organoids in vitro and reduced expression of apoptosis-related genes in vivo in mice with GVHD. Finally, in patients undergoing allo-HCT, low numbers of L-cells in intestinal biopsies and elevated serum levels of GLP-2 were associated with a higher incidence of non-relapse mortality. The authors speculate that the high serum levels of GLP-2 result from intestinal cell destruction and GLP-2 leakage. In summary, the authors found that intestinal L-cells are a target of GVHD, which leads to a decline of the enteroendocrine hormone GLP-2. The deficiency of L-cells, intestinal stem cells, and panith cells due to GVHD can be overcome by treatment with the GLP-2 analog, teduglutide, already in clinical use for treatment of short bowel syndrome. Teduglutide reduced GVHD severity and restored intestinal homeostasis without impairing immune reconstitution and graft-versus-leukemia effects in mice. Norona and colleagues make the case that teduglutide could become a novel combination partner of immunosuppressive GVHD therapy to be tested in future controlled clinical trials. In an accompanying commentary entitled, I Have a Gut Feeling, Nelson Chow from Duke University Medical Center notes that Nerona et al. have uncovered a novel pathway that is critical in GVHD, offering new hope for more effective treatment. As with all good studies, there remain unanswered questions. For example, since L-cells make both GLP-1 and GLP-2, what is the contribution of GLP-1, which has significant anti-inflammatory activity, and will this drug work to treat established GVHD in patients? Finally, are there other enteroendocrine cells targeted by alloreactive donor T-cells or through cytokines that also contribute to GVHD pathology? While these and other questions remain, Chow suggests the findings of this study are encouraging and support a clinical trial of teduglutide in allo-HCT patients. Our next study is entitled Plasmodium falciparum sexual parasites develop in human erythroblasts and affect erythropoiesis by Neve and colleagues, led by Verdier and Lavazek at Inserm U1016 at the Université de Paris in France. Malaria remains a major public health issue and causes half a million deaths annually. The most severe forms of malaria are caused by the parasite Plasmodium falciparum, this study showed for the first time that erythroblasts are a new host cell for P. falciparum, which invade as an immature gametocyte and develop inside of developing red blood cells into the mature gametocyte that is transmitted from humans to mosquitoes. While in the human host, malaria parasites undergo asexual replication within circulating red blood cells that lasts 48 hours. At the end of this 48-hour cycle, the parasites aggress from the infected blood cells, and the cycle then repeats. However, during this asexual cycle, a small proportion of parasites commit to produce sexual progeny, called gametocytes. The gametocyte is the only form of the parasites that can be transmitted to the mosquito. Gametocytes go through five stages of sexual maturation that take approximately 10 days to complete. Only the mature stage 5 form returns to the bloodstream, residing inside of circulating red blood cells until taken up by a mosquito. 
The transmission stage constitutes a bottleneck for the parasites and may represent an important target for drugs or vaccines. Understanding the biology of gametocyte development is crucial for successful malaria elimination. While it was known that immature gametocytes develop in parenchyma, where they accumulate around erythroblastic islands, the nature of the interactions between gametocytes and these islands remained elusive. These investigators developed a protocol to produce and quantify P. falciparum gametocytes in a synchronized culture of primary human erythroblasts derived from GCSF-mobilized peripheral blood. They used this approach to investigate for the first time P. falciparum sexual maturation processes in erythroid precursors and also assessed their effects on erythropoiesis. They identified late erythroblasts as a new host cell for P. falciparum gametocytes and showed that the gametocytes can fully develop inside these nucleated cells, leading to infectious mature gametocytes within reticulocytes. These observations were supported by analysis of bone marrow smears from a malaria-infected patient. Unexpectedly, they also found that infection of erythroblasts by gametocytes and parasite-derived extracellular vesicles delay the conversion of erythroblasts into reticulocytes. This allows complete gametocyte development in nucleated cells and enables gametocyte maturation to coincide with the release of their host cell from the bone marrow. The delay in erythroid differentiation was correlated with oxidative stress that could be induced in erythroblasts by either gametocyte infection or extracellular vesicles. These results highlight new mechanisms that are pivotal for the maintenance of immature gametocytes in the bone marrow. And in addition, provide further insights on how plasmodium parasites interfere with erythropoiesis. Thus, therapeutic and vaccine interventions targeting gametocytes would not only prevent transmission, but may also decrease anemia in malaria patients. Pierre-Yves Mantel from the University of Freiburg in Switzerland provides an accompanying commentary entitled, Erythroblasts Provide a Home for Gametocytes. He notes that although parasite-derived extracellular vesicles have already been shown to contribute to manipulation of host cells, this study shows for the first time an effect of plasmodium-secreted vesicles on erythropoiesis. However, the molecular identity of vesicle cargos that help to delay erythroblast differentiation remain unknown. Invading parasites also remodel host cells by exporting proteins into cytosol. Neveu and colleagues raise the question, that gametocytes might hijack host cells by secreting proteins with nuclear localization signals that could interfere with host cell gene regulation to delay erythroid maturation. Mantel concludes that this study provides solid evidence for the new mechanism of gametocyte retention in the bone marrow by direct infection of erythroblasts. Our final topic today will be a study of oral anticoagulant use entitled Direct Oral Anticoagulants for Cancer-Associated Venous Thromboembolism, a systematic review and meta-analysis by Fritz Mulder and Floris Bosch from the Amsterdam University Medical Centers at the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands and international colleagues. Venous thromboembolism, or VTE, is a common complication in cancer patients. Its management is challenging, because of the opposing risks of bleeding events and recurrent VTE during anticoagulant treatment. Until recently, subcutaneous low molecular weight heparin has been the mainstay of treatment, 
because of the lower risk of recurrent VTE compared with vitamin K antagonists. However, low molecular weight heparin is relatively expensive, and the subcutaneous route of administration is difficult for many patients, making adherence challenging. Direct oral anticoagulants, or DOACs, work via a different mechanism than low molecular weight heparin or vitamin K antagonists. Apixaban, idoxaban, and rivaroxaban inhibit factor 10A and dabigatran inhibits thrombin. These drugs are easy to use as they are given orally in fixed doses without the need for routine monitoring. Based on their favorable safety profile compared to vitamin K antagonists, DOACs are now the recommended treatment for VTE in the general population. Several randomized control trials have recently compared DOACs with low molecular weight heparin for treatment of cancer-associated VTE. Some of these trials showed that DOACs were associated with a higher risk of bleeding compared to low molecular weight heparin. However, this finding was not confirmed in other trials. These conflicting results could reflect differences in patient characteristics across the studies. For example, index VTE and type and stage of cancer, heterogeneity in the definition of study outcomes, or variability in the follow-up period analyses. In addition, most studies were designed as non-inferiority studies, which limits the precision of evaluating the efficacy or safety of DOACs relative to low molecular weight heparin. Hence, questions remain regarding the overall benefit-risk ratio of direct oral anticoagulants versus low molecular weight heparin to treat VTE in cancer patients. In order to address this, the authors conducted a systematic review and meta-analysis. They searched Medline, Embase, and Cochrane Central Register, and relevant conference abstracts to identify relevant randomized control trials. These trials included a broad spectrum of cancer patients. Additional data was obtained from the individual study authors to provide consistent definitions for all study outcomes. The primary efficacy and safety outcomes of this analysis were recurrent VTE and major bleeding, respectively. Other outcomes included the composite of recurrent VTE and major bleeding, clinically relevant non-major bleeding, and all-cause mortality. Summary relative risks were calculated in a random effects meta-analysis. In the primary analysis that included 2,607 patients from four randomized control trials, the risk of recurrent VTE was non-significantly lower with DOACs than with low molecular weight heparin. Conversely, the risks of major bleeding were non-significantly higher. The risk of the composite of recurrent VTE or major bleeding, which is a way to analyze net clinical benefit, was non-significantly lower with DOACs than with low molecular weight heparin. Finally, mortality was comparable in both groups. The findings were consistent during the on-treatment period and as well as in those patients with incidental VTE. The results also did not vary by drug. Apixaban 5 mg twice daily, idoxaban 60 mg once daily, or rivaroxaban 20 mg once daily. Thus, DOACs are an effective treatment option for cancer patients with acute VTE, although caution is needed in patients at high risk of bleeding. One such group includes patients with gastrointestinal cancer, as the majority of major bleeding events occurred in the gastrointestinal tract. The majority of patients in the trials received systemic cancer therapy, 
Plasma concentrations of DOACs can be altered by drugs that inhibit or induce P-glycoprotein or cytochrome P453A4, including several chemotherapeutic agents, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, tamoxifen, and immunomodulating agents such as dexamethasone. Unfortunately, the authors were not able to evaluate the potential interactions of chemotherapy with the DOACs. More research is needed to better understand the pharmacokinetics of DOACs when given concurrently with cancer drugs. In conclusion, this study shows that direct oral anticoagulants are an effective treatment option and safe for most cancer patients with acute VTE, which strengthens current guidelines. Choosing the optimal anticoagulant drug for cancer-associated VTE should be based on a careful balance of the risks of recurrent VTE and bleeding the consideration of potential drug-drug interactions, and patient preference. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.